Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic, episode 1.22, Two World War Shit, Too Furious. I'm Kelsey, that's Luke, and there's always a little bit of truth in legends. So, if you are just starting, this is the continuation of our series of talking through all the canon on-screen battles of the cinematic Star Wars universe with, of course, occasional shout-outs to Rebels and Clone Wars. Um, though I think we ruled that there wasn't any battle of a scale large enough to count in Rebels. Anyway, we are here to talk about the battles. Um, and that we spent the last episode talking about everything in the prequels and in both of the Star Wars story movies, which count as prequels. Um, and now we are on a New Hope, um, which uh, <laughs> surely the least discussed piece of media um, in existence. There's not enough takes on A New Hope out there. Um, but one of the things I think to, <laughs> to start with is if we were um, talking about battles, there's really only one that counts at scale in A New Hope. It opens with um, the end of the Battle of Scarif, um, where the, the where Princess Leia and the blockade runner are fleeing um, and get captured. And then there's really nothing of a scale where there's a thousand combatants after that until the very end at the Battle of Yavin. Um, yeah i and i can't i can't think of a uh i can't think of you know like a like a story or or like a war that or even a battle where you know like they just you know where you just have to get there and click the button and it's over and you win you know like i I don't, you know, I don't know. Maybe there were a bunch of uh, trench runs by cavalry back in the day, but uh, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't know about all that. Well, it's very. There's nothing that's a clear historical analog. Maybe the closest thing we can get were the repeated attempts um, and then the successful attempts to sink the battleship Bismarck, um, but you need something <laughs> like a battleship you need a a target that is big and powerful and threatening in and of itself and also that is um inter that is held together in a uh, hostile environment um so that it can fall apart and that's really like the closest thing you're gonna get is battleships um which uh turns out fell out of favor as soon as it became possible to reliably hit them with airplanes. Um, part of the <laughs> sinking of the Bismarck, if I recall correctly, was that the they figured out they could fly um, seaplanes and biplanes, which were slower than the defenses could pick up on. And they were able to fly slower and lower and then shoot torpedoes at the dang thing. Um, if we really, really, no, it's it was <laughs> is as a as a kid who subscribed to like I don't even know what the thing was called like airplane fact sheets as a as a child and you get like little things to put in the big binder of planes and plane facts. Um, there was like learning about it. I think it was like the Shepherd Ferry, um, but like oh they sunk a battleship with biplanes in World War Two that's wacky. Um, but no, that, that was the thing. Um, the only other like <laughs> historical analog you could maybe come up with is Pearl Harbor, um, which probably influenced the thinking of it because <laughs> that's another moment of, again, really all of these are case studies and why battleships are uh, bad ideas. Um, 
There are occasionally attempts that you will see floated about by the, the saltiest people in uh, the military universe who like, we should bring back battleships or we need to have like, we need to have a big like arsenal ship or something. And like everything you do is a target. At least aircraft carriers can throw planes at other things, but uh, a whole lot of target building more than they are a useful weapon. You know, I'm just, I'm just going to point out something here that, uh, you know, we make a lot of jokes. We do. And I mean, every, every Star Wars fan does uh, about the number of um, super weapons, you know, like, oh, they keep going back to the super weapon. Oh, they keep doing the Death Star. And then here you are, like, there are still people trying to do battle state uh, battleships like. 70 or 80 years after they're useful you know like on you know yeah i yes i obviously want them to do like you know something besides a super weapon but at the same time like yeah that's pretty accurate to humanity as far as at least america as far as i know no it is it's a weird thing and like um as a as a tangent on the tangent there's a thing that happens where you get into like military acquisitions where the people who rise to the ranks want to build the same kind of vehicles that got them there. Um, so you would have like army would be yeah. like a tank when tank generals have the prestige, the army gets super invested in armored vehicles. When uh, the air forces, they joke is run by the fighter pilot mafia, um, which is why we're still flying like B-52s instead of other things. So that's changing at um, considerable expense. Of course it is. Um, but it's okay. Our fighters and our bombers are super expensive now. And then the Navy, it was like when the shift went from it was people, admirals and with experience on carriers, we stopped having this real concerted push to make battleships because a carrier can hit things hundreds of miles away and the battleship is lucky if it can bombard that far a inland. Um, all of which is to say, right, like the Death Star is a sort of the combination of every possible super weapon of that point. If you were to put all of the military of or like the cinematic tropes of military in world war two into one thing, you have this vehicle with its short range fighters with its um, massive defensive cannons and with its a uh, big hunk and vulnerability to being sunk or in space, just uh, obliterated into the void. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> it's just funny to me, like, I don't even think, I don't even think out of the, like, actual combatants of the, the, the battle that we see that we get a thousand combatants. I think we only get there because, you know, the Death Star has 250,000 or 650, or however many fucking people it has on it, um, and I mean, whatever the rebels have on the ground, but again, it's not a ton of people. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I well, mean, yeah, then there you go. <laughs> definitely doesn't count as a thousand combatants on both sides. But fortunately, the metric is a thousand casualties, um, which. Uh, oh, oh, no, we're good. We're good then. We, yeah. we are. We're good to go. Um, and then, of course, the iconic, right? It was, uh, was it like the Dam Busters was the. Um, film that George Lucas borrowed a lot of the sequencing from. Um, I don't know. There's stuff you could look at the the targeting reticle, which uh, is is great and wonderful. And I um, am not alone in having like a clothing with the targeting camera on it. Um, but that's an adaptation of the Norden bomb site, which was supposed to be this very powerful. Uh, tool for bombers in world war ii and then it turns out it's great if you're flying low where you can get shot at and it's uh, less good if you're flying very high um where you don't uh anyway there's stuff in there it's all it, it ends up being right these perhaps the single most iconic battle in the series uh, but not really a ton of analog to it Yeah, I mean, except uh, Starkiller Base, which, you know, is just the same thing in reverse, so. <laughs> right, right, very. But we'll, but we'll get there, I guess. Oh, we will get there, we will get there. Um, 
so moving along to, um, I think that it's funny as we go where we're tracing World War II in reverse here. Um, if the Battle of Yavin is your, your exciting uh, war-ending strategic fight, we go back to um, Empire Strikes Back opens with probably the best battle in the original trilogy, I would argue. Um, s- certainly one of the more dynamic, which is the Battle of Hoth. Um, and as analogs go, I think the one that struck in my mind is that Hoth is closest to Dunkirk. Um, it's not exactly the same. You don't have to bring the ships over to evacuate people. But uh, Dunkirk very quickly was the in the, the short Western theater of World War II, initial Western theater, uh, after Germany invades Poland, the UK and France, like, we need to put on a united front. They had France as this whole super powerful defensive formation that Germany's uh, went around. Um, and the British show up and they're fighting, and Dunkirk is basically the last port where they are holding out because the fighting has not gone very well. Um, and the battle is one where every ship possible that could be mustered from England sails over and evacuates people um, so that the British army isn't just routed in France. Um, and Hoth has that kind of feel, right? The rebels are, they've been, they had a success, but they are still not holding territory so much as operating from hidden territory. Um, and they're found. And boy, are they found. Yeah. I mean, I guess if my memory of Dunkirk is correct, uh, based almost solely on that Christopher Nolan movie, um, it, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I can see it. Obviously, you don't have to, like, ferry the ships in and out, but, you know, the, uh, the the large ion cannon that they're firing, you know, is a way to uh, to to open up space to get to pass the blockade and everything like that. Um, it, you know, I think that that's an that's that's an interesting way to do that at least. Um, um and uh, you know, they I guess they have the what are the what do the ATATs represent in oh. that scenario at Dunkirk? Are they just the large the large German ships or uh, tanks? Probably. Um, we don't. Okay. Really... Okay. Uh, well, what... wait. How did they get tanks at Dunkirk? Well, that was the thing is that the Germans held the armor back for a while, which is what let um, Dunkirk even happen. There's uh, military history is replete with arguments about whether or not. Um, the German armor made the right call, and like clearly, um, obviously, is it Dunkirk an island? No, 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 no. Dunkirk is a port. It's not. I okay. Well, there you go. That 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 settles a lot then, because I thought it was an island, and I was having a lot of trouble figuring out how and why they would drop tanks on it instead of just surrounding the damn thing okay go, sorry go ahead. no 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 it's, it's totally understandable so like it's like a little marshy right like it's it's in the netherlands it's that part of that coast where like it's not the easiest way to move armor but it's a coastal like it's a it's a it's a port um yeah so ATATs would be would be functionally tanks and troop transports um there's a lot, um, if you want to go uh, deep back, there was a Battle of Hoth Symposium put on by Danger Room back when Wired still had defense reporting and called it Danger Room, um, where they had... Oh, like, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, no, that was great. And then we did a uh, response with Bob from Blog Tarkin, and then they invited us back to talk about it there. Um, this is very awesome. 2013 internet. Um, it was super cool um, to talk about all the lessons of, of Hoth because it's a, it's an imperial victory, but an incomplete one, right? That's the thing about Dunkirk. Well, I don't, I don't know if you, go ahead. I don't know if you know this, but uh, the Empire made mistakes at the Battle of Hoth. Have, have you heard this before? I, you know, I, I know that's uh, that's shocking to many people. That. Uh, <laughs> 
I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm obviously joking, but like, you know, the it, people, you know, always love, oh, well, the empire made a bunch of, well, no fucking shit, really. Like they got beat, they got beat by like a princess and some like old crammed together, you know, tiny starships, you know, it's not, uh, <laughs> they lost it. They lost a 3-1 lead anyway, you know, like, uh, <laughs> of course they, mistakes were made. Like that's not a, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, it's great. It's one of the, um, I, I swear, uh, Filoni's work in television canon for Star Wars is basically putting glue on everything that's like been debunked by fans. It's like, it's almost as though he internalized like the conversation in Clerks, um, where they're like shooting the shit about Star Wars, and it's like, okay, I'm gonna make cinematic. I'm gonna I'm gonna answer these questions in canon, and so having like Thrawn's sudden disappearance lead to the fall of the Empire is a great, um, if over the top way to say why was the Empire so successful and then suddenly not. Yeah, and. I mean, like that to me, to me, it's really interesting, like the way that they do that, the way that they, they like massage the canon and things like that, because uh, when, when I, uh, when I was a kid, you know, it was just like the, the big thing was that they get, oh, Boba Fett survived the, uh, the Sarlacc pit. And then, you know. And they they kind of massage things here and there, but the, but you know with the prequels they 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 really put it into overdrive, and it's just like, um, I I, I appreciate that Filoni is like that because he um, what am I trying to say? He's he's like an earnest fan who is also self aware enough to understand that. Um, excuse me, that, you know, some of the stuff is goofy and some of it doesn't make sense, you know? And so there let's, let's give it a, at least plausible veneer in the canon so that, you know, it doesn't all seem just like nonsense because on the one hand, yes, it is nonsense. And we should always remember that it is silly nonsense, but on the other hand, you don't want it to be, you know, like you don't want it to just be like some, you know, you don't want it to get like the EU was. And I don't mean that in like as an insult, but the EU is like contradictory and, you know, like it had all this stuff where like they tried so hard to explain things, but at the same time, it is nice for them to be like, yes, you know, the empire made this mistake for this reason yeah you know and i mean it's like yeah yeah i get i get it yeah um it's good it's also um hoth is the first time we see um combat droids used for battle in these in the least release schedule um which is an interesting choice obviously it's a huge part of how they flesh out the the prequels, but it's the anticipating, oh, we're going to do galactic counterinsurgency with scout robots that can occasionally shoot, um, anticipated uh, more than a few things, turns out. Um, <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Uh, Darth Vader's targeted killing program and uh, probe droids. Um, uh, it also lends itself so well to micro machines. I cannot emphasize enough the the effect that had on my young brain. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Micro machines were fun to tell. And uh, one of these days, we're going to dive into the merchandise. If we need to really to, to stretch out an episode, we're just going to go into like old Republic. Oh Jesus! Do it. We'll do it. Oh, um, so I don't know if there's any other like. Um, so that's the battle of Empire Strikes Back. The rest is uh, there's pursuit, uh, but there's nothing else really that that matches that on the scale. Um, yeah, and so yeah, I don't think I don't think so. I don't think there's anything else uh, in Empire <laughs> that's yeah. even close. Yeah, um, and then Endor. Um, 
well, not Endor, Return of the Jedi, right? Uh, I don't think any of Jabba's stuff comes close to having a thousand casualties. Um, and even then, they're both non-state combatants, though you could still track that in a battle. Um, but uh, Battle of Endor, um, which is just um, also just like one of the things that just blew my mind as a kid. Um, there's no rough analogy um, because it's very hard to have um, super weapons as experienced in Star Wars uh, do not exist and have not been used in battle thankfully like the closest thing we could imagine right is if there was a massive like carrier battle if World War II had like continued into 1946 say and then the U.S. or or another combatant threw a nuke into that battle. That would be the closest thing. But there really isn't any analog to. By the way, we have this secret. We have this under construction weapon that is actually ready. Yeah, I don't. I don't know anything. Know anything? It could be because you've got like a naval battle. And then you've got the stuff on the ground, and the, and nothing can really happen in the sky, um, except survival until like the shield wall is down. And yeah, no clue. I mean, probably some like older battles where you know they did like subduction on like old castle walls and stuff like that. So it which cleared a way for like another party to get in. But I mean, like that's really stretching. <laughs> I think um, yeah it's our battles just don't take place in 3D like theirs do and and I know that sounds weird because obviously we exist in a three-dimensional world but their battles take place on on land in the air in space and uh, occasionally in water um and almost all of our battles take place on land. There obviously are naval battles and, uh, you know, air battles have become or were common for uh, and are probably still common in some ways. Um, but, you know, almost all of our stuff is on land and very, very, very little of their stuff is on land, ex- you know, except for like the Hoth, you know, Hoth or, or something like that. Oh. We'll talk about Ewoks in just a second, but the other thing that's really interesting is that the the notion of these interconnected systems, the shield on the moon that protects the space station, that protects the Death Star, um, incredible cinematic choice, the way to do it, it works out perfectly for the the story being, Mm -hmm. being told in film, and there's nothing close to it. Um, yeah, there may be like, and this may be a thing that reflects more in how we get to future wars if we get to a point where nations hurl massive machines at each other and also don't immediately go to nukes, um, which is sort of the cap that puts a <laughs> lid on all of this. Um, because what you would have in something like that is if, um, because there are, this is something I cover cover professionally and we talk about like, the term is garbage, but it's like cyber weapons or electronic warfare, all this stuff where you are using weird code and frequencies on the electromagnetic spectrum to knock out other systems. Um, and the closest thing we might have to that, which is uh, so stretched, it's a wonder I'm even bringing it up, is if you can send code to a flying drone that overpowers its flight controls and then it will either do a default like return to where it was launched or it will just crash and that's the closest thing we've come in the modern world to having a shield you can disable that then makes it possible to blow up a death star (laughs) yeah some of it just doesn't translate you know you know and then with the and then with the Ewoks, some of it absolutely does translate because, I mean, that's it's about as clear of an analog as you get in Star Wars. <laughs> um, 
the Ewoks, uh, famously standing for the Viet Cong, um, which I think for a while was just fan speculation. And then on, I know, I think it was a 2004 special edition uh, commentary for uh, Return of the Jedi. He specifically said he used the Viet Cong um, as a stand, the Ewoks as a standing for the Viet Cong. Uh, from the Vietnam War, and um, and, and you know he finally confirmed that he's he's confirmed it since. Um, and you know you get the typical um, idea of a much uh, a much less advanced, technologically advanced uh, civilization uh, defeating a, an imperialist uh, colonizing force and um yeah they're the Viet Cong I don't know what else there is to say about it I mean it's also it's a I it's a fascinating choice for George Lucas to make to have such a the 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 competing lobes of his brain the simultaneously we need to make this a very clear analogy to um, imperial hubris and overreach and um, the, and failure um, and we're going to do that with uh, was it um, and this is you might know better than I um, and this is the thing I should know is were they originally supposed to be Wookiees and then they changed it yeah um, so originally in the uh, in the original treatment like the Ewoks or a version of the Ewoks was always going to be in there, not in the first movie, but just as part of the story, the original trilogy story, uh, they were Wookiees, but then by, you know, especially in, um, uh, empire and a new hope, you see Chewbacca, like he, you know, he's, he's a co-pilot, um, of a ship and he fires a gun. And so he, and so Lucas decided that, uh, the Wookiees were too technologically advanced to stand in. So he created the Ewoks separately. And I mean, also he, and, and I mean, he said this before the, the Ewoks were also made that way because of, you know, for toys, once they decided that they had to do something besides the Wookiees, um, they went with the, they went with the Ewoks. Um, and so they just created the cutest thing they could possibly do. And, you know, here we are. <laughs> I mean, it financed the movie for them. So I guess good for them. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it works. It, it functionally works. It's wild to think that for that there were years where the Ewoks were like the, the point of contention in Star Wars when. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, I'm just barely old enough to remember, like, I'm I'm barely old enough to remember like before the prequels came out when like the thing that people argued about was like you know oh you like the Ewoks oh you don't like the you know like uh, and yeah that that was that definitely that was probably the biggest point of contention yeah oh um yeah but but fantastic amazing absolutely good the the cutest little uh army yes. that ever uh eight stormtroopers and also uh apparently someone the exact size and proportions of uh princess leia <laughs> yeah exactly they're ready to go they're like we've killed before and we'll kill again baby <laughs> yeah uh all right. Well, I think uh, the next one is jumping ahead thirty years to uh, the Force Awakens. Yeah. So we could just do a new. So just rewind and and listen to the A New Hope segment again, and then come back and yeah, then you got it. So. Right. Just replace uh, World War II tropes with um, Star Wars tropes, and you're set. Uh, because canon is nothing if not self-referential. Um, a couple quick things. Um, one is uh, not a battle per se. I mean, we could mention this um, at um, back with the New Hope, right? Is the destruction of Alderaan in the New Hope and the 
what is known as the Hosnian Cataclysm. And if you're wondering why that doesn't have any meaning or weight, uh, that's because there was absolutely no effort paid in The Force Awakens to establish stakes for when a superweapon destroyed five planets all at once. Um, I think it was five planets. I don't even know. And I should know these things. It was Um, five. Yeah. It was five or six. uh, You know, whatever. It was planets. People died. Yeah, no, no. J.J. Abrams rolling a D6 and deciding that's how many planets he wanted to wipe out. Um, Yeah, so, like, that's a thing. The the close and rough analog we have to to any of this would be the atomic attacks on uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, which took place 75 years ago this week. Um, Unquestionably, uh, morally abhorrent uh there's tons of other stuff i'm ready to read about that that is not what you're coming to a star wars podcast for i just wanted to but to be to be clear just so we're clear the once again the u.s is actually worse than the empire because whereas the empire did destroy five whole planets there were the 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 new republic military was at least stationed at one of those planets it wasn't just five planets filled with uh women and, and children and, and elderly sick people. Um, so yeah, it's, it's good to, good to think about every now and again, I guess. And, and while on this tangent, it's worth noting too, the, we think, and there's, there was for years and it's finally starting to change this narrative of the U S debating whether or not it was a bomb or an invade. And neither of those things are true. What happened is that the army, was in possession of the bombs and went ahead to use them as soon as it had them. And there wasn't really an executive order in any direction until after Truman heard about the second one and ordered the army to stop, which is fascinating to think about, that the only nukes were sort of just treated as weapons until the president decided they should be treated as super weapons. Um, There's a lot more. Uh, Bug me on Twitter about this, and I will um, talk at you for far more time than you probably appreciated. Anyway, there's the Hosnian Cataclysm. It has no stakes in canon because they didn't make it feel like it did. Um, and then there's the Battle of Starkiller Base, which is uh, which is the Battle of Yavin um, without tangible stakes. But the sun does get burnt out. That's that's neat. And there's stuff in there, right? Like the characters. Also. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, also they they fight on the ground there. You know, there's there's there is a ground fight there, so that's something. Whereas the, uh, um, you know, uh, in Battle of Yavin, there there's no ground fight. There's just pictures of Leia and three PO being like, eh. I that command on the ground so. that burned in my brain. It was like one of the coolest. Yeah. Things. Um. Yeah, and now when you look at it, and they have to like retrofit like com like technology now to like make it look like that kind of stuff because that's what that's the technology, the super advanced technology that they have is like battleship boards. <laughs> oh, it's so good, so good. Yeah, yeah. Um, the um, I was gonna say, uh, shit. Yeah, I forgot what I was going to say. No clue. Uh, Something so, about Starkiller, I'm sure. Yeah, I think that's that's all we got. And then um, on to The Last Jedi, which opens and closes with battles. Um, and battles of both, of, of scale. Um, probably. We can safely assume, if we count the whole pursuit of the fleet and the siege, the sort of slow pursuit of uh, ships... Through space, um, even with Prate, then that counts as a thousand casualties for sure. Um, but first, it opens with the Battle of Dakar. Dakar, I don't know. Um, and that's the one yeah, where no clue. The, the, which again, we are working from World War II tropes, um, which is why you have bombers that do gravity bombing. Um, Sure. Um, I don't have strong opinions on the gravity bombs, but there are definitely people who do. You can find them. Um, you are welcome to do that on your own. Um, the 
Well, the gravity bombs, is the, I mean, the only thing I'll say is that uh, even if it hadn't already been established in Empire that that they can drop bombs, which it had, um, the... Um, I'm not a I'm not a physicist, but uh, one thing I do know is that if something is dropped and it has inertial mass and it's pushed in a certain direction, including simply being dropped, um, it will continue to fall in that direction in a vacuum, at least as as I remember from uh, physics. Um, and so, if you drop something and it pushes directly downward, it's going to fall directly downward into the big ship that's right below it. So. You know, that's just a thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but it but it doesn't make any sense. I mean, like it's it's obviously there to be like a like a B fifty two bomber type thing, like <sighs> a slow mobile tank, uh, you know, air tank or whatever. Right, and it's it falls into right we um, in in keeping with the the it's like poetry it rhymes structure of all of this. Um, we need to see the resistance on on the run, and I think something um, more than most Star Wars movies, maybe any, The Last Jedi opens with a battle that is a technical victory, but also um, only barely. It's as close to a Pyrrhic victory as one gets. And then you get to see um, Poe disciplined for making for using resources in a way that technically won the day, but also was at a higher cost than the resistance could bear. Um, which is a thing you would expect to see in this stuff, um, but you know, military accountability is uh, all over the place at all times, and who are we to say um, in year 19 of our forever war what is uh, reasonable and good? Um, so the more interesting battle in the Last Jedi is the battle <laughs> of Great. I just the the thing the whole thing about the Poe. I, I get the story. I get why he's doing. I, I get the whole thing, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that I agree with it. Sometimes you gotta. There aren't there aren't any of you left. Sometimes you got to take people out. I don't know. That's just me. But you know that's. I mean, it's hard. It's so hard. That's another story. Know what the stakes are in this sequel trilogy apart yeah. from the characters we see, and so it would be a thing if you take the moment to establish stakes. Like if you say if you show a planet in the Force Awakens that is like damaged but survives the cataclysm or is like taking on refugees from the cataclysm and then you have in the last jedi that they are fighting a battle to protect that if there are stakes besides the characters and the fleet then maybe something but it was a but the army sort of exists as the whole of the universe we see is the two the two forces and then it happens to be in a world where other things exist which is a weird way to tell war stories, um, though it definitely, the idea of the war continuing and populations existing and they're not being connected in any tangible way um, is certainly well, modern. Yeah. Yeah, well, the other, thing that, the other thing that's weird about it is that neither of these fighting forces have planetary bases like that we see in the movies. Now there are comics like the Poe Dameron comic and other things that kind of flesh out like, no, the first order is actually like taken over like some large sectors of the galaxy and they're overrunning like the core, some core worlds and stuff like that because their, their military is so powerful, but you never see any of that in the force awakens or the last Jedi. Like, I mean, it's like kind of alluded to in the last Jedi, but like, um, you know, like that, the, the stakes of it at the very beginning are, uh, are very weird to me because like all they had to do was take out that big, ship that was following them and you know that was that was the 
that was the thing. They just had to turn and hit it. And um, so it's interesting. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to me how that, how that was, uh, how that was done. Yeah, and it's just it's it's weird to tell stories of fighting without fighting for what what is the place that is being defended here. Um, like you even get uh, to the extent that there's been something done that recently, right? Mandalorian at least establishes stakes in many in like the um, in its like uh, seven samurai episode. Um, it at least establishes like here is a place and here is stakes and here is a threat, um, and it's so weird to not have that. But we do get at least briefly a place with stakes. Um, it's crate. the The rebels have the resistance have landed. They are hiding. They are besieged. Um, they conveniently have very powerful siege walls. Inconveniently, the only major technology innovation of the past, oh, 34 years in canon is figuring out different ways to do Death Star guns. Um, and they make a cannon. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's basically the Battle of Hoth again. Um, you know. Well, it's slightly different. They have to they have to escape a different way, you know. But it's still a large force just bearing down on these uh, on the rebels or the whatever the resistance when they could easily just blockade the planet and wait. Now, I mean, obviously that uh, you know, loot goading Kylo and everything like that is you know, goes a long way to explaining why they don't, but you know, it's another one of those things where you're like, Oh, these are the, the technical, the technical failures that they made. Um, you know, the battle of crate is just the battle of Hoth with, uh, sand, reddish sand instead of, uh, snow in, in a lot of ways. But as Kelsey said, they have the, uh, the large shield ball, which, um, the way it's set up kind of reminds me of uh, the the fall of Constantinople, which was in uh, fourteen fifty three, uh, and the really briefly Constantinople had been built in like the three hundreds uh, AD, and then it had these massive land walls built around it that stood for a thousand years. Uh, until the 1400s when gunpowder was successfully utilized in in artillery in uh, at least outside of China uh, really for the it started to become more implemented and they finally were able to build literally the largest cannon ever invented by humans to uh, shoot a hole into the wall and so that is a lot like crate to me, I mean, but obviously it's the same stuff we talked about with Hoth. So there's, a, you know, it's a Dunkirk. It is a, um, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's just a replay. Yeah. It's just a replay of Hoth, but you know, it, it, it does have that, that, that one difference at least. And the, the, the fall of Constantinople is also just a fascinating thing because the guy who built the cannon shows up and offers to sell it first to the Byzantines in Constantinople. like, we can't afford this. And then he sells it to the Turks. He's like, we can definitely <laughs> afford this. And that's when Constantinople uh, became Istanbul. Um, got renamed later. Anyway. <laughs> um, but that was really the linchpin in there. It's a neat, neat moment. Um, yeah. And then um, the last real battle in the cinematic canon to talk about um as we uh must plow through to rise of skywalker um <laughs> lots of little fighting it's entirely possible that the opening moment where kylo ren kills all the weird creatures had a thousand casualties but who knows there's hardly a sense of scale or context for uh, most of this film um but the Battle of Exegol absolutely counts, um, which yeah. is Endor. But what if every Star Destroyer was also a Death Star? 
And also we just cobbled together every ship that we could possibly think of, you know, and threw them into a, uh, a massive fleet. <laughs> Which I guess, in a way, that kind of makes it like Dunkirk, because, I mean, there were literally like like little ferry boats and passenger ships, you know, at Dunkirk. And, you know, in Exegol, you see um, e- even, you know, like like long hauler ships and, and, and non ships that aren't used in battle. But they showed up because you got you got to do it. You know, you got to gotta show up when you can so i guess this this is like the dunkirk episode i guess we just just yeah if you're really if you're looking for if you're looking for world war ii action things star wars has moved away from referencing world war ii tropes other than this one battle um but yeah yeah, there's really not like a ton uh history it turns out is fairly lacking in examples of um people bringing their personal fishing vessels and passenger ships uh, to a battleship fight. Um, turns out that that's not a thing that just <laughs> happens a lot for whatever reason. Um, yeah. It well, does... until we go to war with Iran and they just start uh, ramming our battleships with, uh, uh, you know, ex- boat like tiny fishing boats filled with explosives. And then we're like, well, we had a battle of Exegol now, I guess. I, yeah, I mean, like, I guess the closest things you could point to would be, like, the, uh, like, Spain's Invincible Armada, which was, like, beaten by the Elizabethan fleet, which had stuff like that, or, like, a lot of the early naval battles where they didn't quite, where ships were big, but they didn't quite know what weapons to use from them yet, or cannons took a super long time to load and shoot, and you could do things like get close and set a ship on fire and get away. There's stuff in there. Um, and then definitely we have, uh, in the modern world, we have, as a naval exercises repeatedly prove, you can put explosives on a small boat and it will damage a big boat for a far more cost-effective way to do it. Um, but then often, uh, if you want to see something ever get real mad about just the planning that goes into this stuff, read about the, uh, the I believe it was the Millennium Game um, it was a naval exercise where they had a like marine red team, which is like figure out what would what would the adversary be doing here, um, and they figured out a way to actually use by the rules of the game all the like small cheap ships to defeat aircraft carriers, and then they changed the rules. Um, super confidence inspiring stuff, every part of it. But there's right. This is. Uh, <laughs> More in anticipation of a future battle than a reflection on a historical one. Um, but it also just shows that there weren't, like, the things that make, um, you know, that make Hoth or make Yavin work, or even really, like, made uh, Genosis or Coruscant um, or, or Scarif work um, is stakes. Um, and there's, we get the sense, right? Like uh, one of the Star Destroyer, Death Star Destroyer things from Mexico goes off and blows up a world, but we don't really get more than that. Um, and it's very hard to know what's happening in a battle, even if you do have a trench run on the literal surface of a Star Destroyer in an atmosphere. Which I'd almost yeah. forgotten. I mean, look, I'm I'm not gonna lie. I, I enjoyed the uh, the cavalry charge on the uh, on the on the wing of the starship. I'm I'm not gonna lie. That was that was pretty good. Um, like at least as far as spectacle goes, it, it was. I mean, it was nonsense, but I mean, you know, you got yeah. a cavalry charge on a ship. I know that's happened at least once or twice in history. Not not very often, but you know. There is, um, oh, I'm going to mess it up. Mike Duncan, who did, uh, who does the Revolutions podcast, uh, challenged readers. He found at least one example of a ship defeated by a cavalry charge. I believe it was either, I think it was in 1830, and it happened because it was frozen in harbor. Um, 
and you could do it. But there's at least one other example in history. Um, it's a fun thing to look up. So it's not never. Um, very wacky, wild sort of thing. Um, and it was visually stunning. I, I just, as with everything else in, in, in Rise of Skywalker. It just didn't make any sense yet. <laughs> I so wish the choices in visualization had been bent to a narrative that felt like a narrative. Um, which, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, I don't know if we have any more to say. Otherwise, if we keep going, we're just going to rag on Rise of Skywalker. And you've heard us do that before. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think that's, that's all the battles. Um, Resistance does Star Wars Resistance is uh, is another animated series and it takes place uh, just before and then just before the Force Awakens and goes until kind of just after the Last Jedi, um, and there are a couple of battles in that, but again, it's mostly the same thing. It's you know like a bunch of uh, uh, cobbled together fleet, uh, you know, trying to defeat like an you know the the overwhelming pilots of the first order or something like that um so it's it's a lot of uh kind of like the battle of exegol stuff um but i think that yeah i think that's about it as far as those things go yeah well i think that um yeah concludes this one for now um and uh Next time we will hopefully be back with um, more more legends to talk about. Um, but we'll figure that out and let you know, and you can anticipate um, either more of us ragging on the films we love so dearly, or uh, diving into the lesser known parts of canon that we also love dearly. So. Thank you for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. You can follow us on Twitter at PhotorPod. You can email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. You can send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. Um, if there's a topic you want us to cover, do not hesitate to reach out. I'm at Hatherton on Twitter. I'm at Luke's Amazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you.